Good day, listeners, and welcome to today's episode of Say Word. Say Word is a podcast that we started, and the goal is to inform, offer diverse perspectives, and add a touch of humor where appropriate. The events happening in Toronto and in our world that our listeners can connect with. We started this podcast to give you thoughtful and purposeful perspectives. Toronto is home to us all, hence the name. And we want to make sure that we're leaving you with content that is a good use of your time. I am your host, Ahmed, and I'm glad to be back. Had some serious formal listening to last week's episode. And helping me make today's episode a success are three brothers. So we got Hirsch, aka we can discuss the details over email. We got my man Batter, aka actively trying to reach Maasai so that we don't trade for Drummond. Hopefully that doesn't happen. And we got a guest joining us for today, Ray Lakhani, aka the Wolf of Bay Street. I'm not fucking leaving! Ray, welcome to today's episode. Thank you, guys. Appreciate you having me. Ray, tell us a bit about what you're excited about in joining today's episode. Yeah, so, I mean, I've, I've been listening to your guys' podcast from day one, um, and I think you guys have a lot of great takes. You, you're a great group with a lot of humor, so I'm, uh, I'm happy to uh, join in on discussions and uh, hear what you guys have to say. Hey, we're excited to get your perspective, man. And I don't know if Hirsch gave you the heads up, but we wanted to bring you on board based on your your, your financial acumen. Um, and the theme for today's episode is around personal finances, and we want to just make sure that our audience leaves with some good tidbits. Um, did you want to share just a bit about what keeps you busy between Monday and Friday? Sure. Um, I guess I should say before I start, you know, nothing I nothing I say is investment advice. Nothing I say reflects the views of my employer. You know, yada yada. Of course, of course. For for real, um, I guess basically what I do is um, I work for one of Canada's biggest banks, the capital markets kind of side of things. So basically trading slash managing portfolio of bonds. So it's uh, kind of like, you know, when you look at not necessarily the Wolf of Wall Street movie where they're just sliding penny stocks between uh, clients. But, um, you know, if you ever read the book Liar's Poker, that's a classic um, where you know, you have people trading big size bonds and yeah, I mean, I'm basically just focusing on the markets and managing the bank's money. You're kind of in the trenches of the financial world and you see like very in-depth sort of uh, view. So basically I'm, I'm passionate about numbers. I went to school for math. So yeah, it's a lot of fun. And I get to learn a lot about the financial world. Very cool. Very cool. So I'm sure the last few months or since COVID broken out, has been nuts for you at work. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It was uh, an entire financial crisis within the span of a year, and it went back to normal at the same time. So it's it was like 2007, 2009, except in like hyperspeed, you know, so um, a lot of once in a lifetime kind of experiences you see there. Um, yeah. And yeah, definitely an amazing learning experience. People say it takes a recession to m make a trader. So hey, we look forward to your tell all book in, in a few years. But we'll start, we'll start uh, today's episode off a little bit light. And for our first topic, we're going to be covering Elon Musk and just this obsession the world currently has with him. And I think rightfully so, it's warranted. Um, the last few years have been good to Mr. Musk. Um, he recently announced, he was recently announced by Bloomberg as the world's richest person. Uh, his wealth rose or his net worth rose to about close to 200 billion after the rocket company SpaceX received another round of funding of $850 million led by Sequoia Capital. And he's been heavily involved uh, and, and vocal with cryptocurrency. 
Um, he actually revealed in the latest Tesla annual filing that the company invested over one or almost 1.5 billion in Bitcoin. Hirsch, would love to, to, to get your take on, on, on Mr. Musk. And w- would, is it safe to say that, uh, you know, Musk is more influential than, let's say, you know, the Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, uh, Warren Buffett, you know, other high net worth individuals? Yeah, I think Elon Musk is an interesting character because he's a bit of a polarizing figure. He stirs up a lot of kind of emotions in people, whether that be his fans, whether that be the people working in the SEC. The respect people have for him has a lot to do with his big ideas. So you're thinking like the Hyperloop technology he, he uh, was pushing, reusable rockets and SpaceX, his ambitions to colonize Mars. Um, I think people have appreciation for someone who they see as a visionary. And he, he might be one of those for our era. But I think, again, the way he separates himself, like you said, from the Bill Gates or even the Mark Zuckerbergs or or um, Jeff Bezos, I think has a lot of it has to do with his charisma and the fact that you might be on Twitter and you might see a meme from Elon Musk. I think there was one where he showed a picture of a guy sitting beside his wife in a hospital covering his mouth and his wife said, Kevin, I'm dying. Please stop beatboxing. That kind of ability to connect with him on social media and the fact that he responds to people on social media really mm-hmm. sets him apart. Um, I think it's refreshing when people see him doing stuff like smoking weed on the Joe Rogan podcast because they can point to that and say, yeah, like I do that. It's edgy to see like a CEO do that, you know, whereas you never see that sort of thing by Zuckerberg, who almost seems a little bit robotic. When you're in a corporation, or working for a big organization, the CEO usually toes the line and it's very packaged communications that he doles out, right? So to see someone kind of veer off and do his own thing is I think what makes him, I don't know, admirable to people and the everyday person, like I would say. I think you uh, touched on a good point. Like they are, and it's, it's kind of weird because in, in some ways they're they're the exact opposite of each other. But in some ways, they're very similar. If you look at how Bill Gates kind of um, how he came up, like in university dropout, he was kind of like the guy on the outside looking in business world. But, you know, because of his ideas and because of his, I guess, the business acumen that he developed over the years, you know, he kind of forced his way um, into this kind of like big boys club of like big corporations, big, powerful men. Um, and here's this guy who's like jumping over a chair. <laughs> <laughs> with Bob Walters, like he's basically he's essentially a dork, you know. Like people are like, this is the guy running the world right now, right? Um, and then Elon Musk comes along, and his personality is much more relatable to like just the, the like everyday people. Like you said, it's a generational thing too because people look at the way they use their platforms. Like Bill Gates uses his platform now entirely for like trying to save the world, you know, climate change issues, you know, trying to. Um, you know, talking, he's spending a lot of money or going to be donating a lot of his money towards, you know, uh, food programs in Africa, vaccination programs in Africa, right? So it's um, very admirable. And yet a lot of people don't like him. There's a lot of conspiracies about him, right? And then there's Elon Musk, who he's trying to be the real life Tony Stark. And he's trying to bring us into the future um, rather than, you know, trying to dominate the present. So maybe that's why a lot of people like him. And I think, yeah, the way that people digest their message is a bit different. 
once upon a time, Bill Gates was saying all these things and everybody loved it. And then all of a sudden now it's like, leave us alone. We get it, you know? Whereas Elon Musk, he's much more of a, how do I explain it? He's kind of a troll, right? He likes to get a rise out of people by pointing out the obvious, right? So um, I think he gets a lot of support from people on the internet because there's lots of trolls on the internet and they like that he's trolling business community. He's doing things that are kind of entertaining. Like when he shattered the window of his truck, he's not afraid to fail in public and people like that too. So it's weird, like he can't really do any wrong. I feel like a lot of it is curated though at the same time. I feel like he has a good pulse of like what's going on in like the social media world. So Ray, I, I'm curious and, and all good points. Um everyday billionaire that seems like a kind of like an oxy oxymoron because it's not like everyday people are all billionaires um mm -hmm. like his behavior around how it affects like tesla stock price ray from from your perspective given you know you mentioned earlier just kind of you know studying the markets having a strong pulse on it um have you seen any trends um and i'm, I'm not sure if you've looked at tesla before or if you've studied it extensively if you looked at it closely but is there a common pattern where his behavior um, actually has an impact on the valuations of his company, like, like SpaceX recently, Tesla, that kind of thing? Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, Tesla, a lot of people have uh, made a lot of money on it last year, um, especially the TikTok investors. But it's a highly scrutinized company because it's it's got a lot of scope, right? Like it's more than just selling cars. It's it's a it's a battery company. but some of the metrics, for example, their their market cap right now, their valuation is so high that they basically need to sell more than any any other car company in the world for it to be justified. But you know, people will point to other things like their um, their gigafactories and whatnot. And for example, if you remember a while back when he's like thinking of taking Tesla private at 420, funding secured, and that went really viral and it made the stock go shooting up. So yeah, he's definitely. Uh, had an impact even you know you guys talked about when he was smoking weed on the joe rogan podcast that's on stock fault right so he's he's been a very key component of that that volatility in uh in tesla stock price and you know what's an interesting tidbit on that is um so far tesla's actually made more money off their 1.5 billion dollar bitcoin investment than they have selling cars in their entire history so yeah that's crazy yeah yeah i was reading about that that's crazy when you think about it yeah He's kind of a cavalier, right? Like he likes to see the world burn a little bit, you know, like kind of cool seeing someone like that. And yet, is it not dangerous, right? Don't you think? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely cool that he's, you know, he cares about the longevity of uh, humanity. I mean, that's what he does things that he does with climate change and, um, you know, building electric vehicles. And mm. he's he's basically, a, you know, a bit of the survivalist in that sense where he has a really long term visionary outlook. And I guess he really thinks that, you know, crypto is the future and Bitcoin is a, a good way to do that. I think, you know, we could go on about crypto, but um, there are definitely a lot of cool uh, applications there. And he's uh, he's definitely a, a great a great component of, of being part of the future. So I think that's something that people can uh, admire about him. Anyone have any take on um, for those that, you know, given he's a polarizing figure um, from your opinions and from your point of view, do you think um what we're witnessing with musk just kind of coming to prominence over the last few years is this a fad that we're witnessing or do you think he's like here to stay and uh, he is indeed gonna be in the same category bar none with you know the warren buffett's jeff bezos and bill gates of the world 
I think one thing um, that's uh, really interesting, which uh, kind of goes back to the original question of like Elon Musk and versus Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos, and is really the media narrative that's been around them. You know, Elon Musk, he's he's kind of the newest to the group, right? He's been the richest man in the world for so little time. Bill yeah. Gates, you know, when you think of billionaires, the richest man in the world, Bill Gates has been at the top of that list forever. And, yeah. you know, what's really interesting is the media narrative around them. It's it's part of the polarization uh, that happens because you see these guys, Bill Gates, Elon Musk have signed up for the giving pledge, right? Um, where they're said they'll give away like 50 to 99 percent of their net worth over their lifetimes. Meanwhile, if they do anything, you know, if they give away a billion dollars or something, the media will come out and there will always be that one guy who says this is the equivalent of the average person giving away ten dollars. And it's just like that's how we see that kind of vilification happening. And Bill Gates has been, you know, in the media narrative for so long that he's had a lot of time to like take a lot of punches and Jeff Bezos as well, because he hasn't, you know, these guys are all very philanthropically oriented, but Bill Gates, especially, but Jeff Bezos is, he's just starting to really get into that with his climate fund and whatnot. Elon Musk, he's just still very new money. So he hasn't had time to see as many punches from the media and from that perspective. But I mean, he does get it from various other, you know, narratives. Like he was part of the um, PayPal mafia, right? This uh, group that found PayPal and they're basically dominating Silicon Valley now. And mm-hmm. these guys, just everything they touch turns to gold. I mean, he's um, he's going to be one of the richest men in the world, if not the richest for like forever. So uh, for sure, he's going to be like at the top of that narrative even more now. And he's like you guys said, he's our real life Tony Stark. So, yeah. I guess time will tell. We'll move on. And uh, for our next topic, we're going to be talking about something that we can all relate to, and that's irresponsible purchases. So from the expensive items of clothing stored in our closet that we only wore once for that wedding or for that party, to that item you picked up at an infomercial, because if you ordered now, you would get it for the tempting price of $19.95 plus shipping and handling. But now it's collecting dust in your kitchen somewhere. And, you know, the thing with irresponsible purchases, it's a, it's a subjective term, right? So what one might consider irresponsible can be essential for someone else. So for me, bi-weekly haircuts are very essential for me, like very essential. So I get utility out of it. It spills into my personal life, into my professional life to work and my overall mental well-being. But for some others, it's just a haircut and something you kind of have to do once, uh, once every couple of months. Ray, what are some examples of those irresponsible purchases you're guilty of? I'll put you on the spot here, my friend. You know what's tough is I was looking at the topics, and this is the toughest topic for me to actually cover because, you know, I'm pretty much a a bit of a minimalist. I don't like owning a lot of stuff. You know, maybe besides the odd shirt that I bought that, you know, you wear to a club once and then never again. Um, I can't think of a single, you know, terribly irresponsible purchase that's like, that's actually like, you know, over a couple hundred bucks. I'm going to jump in here. I have a good story about this. And it goes way back, actually. I think it was first or second year. And the iPhone 3GS, so I'm sorry, I might seem old, but the 3GS, if anyone remembers, it was like the biggest thing at that time. And I remember I used my OSAP to buy the phone. And at oh, the time, I didn't feel guilty. It was like, I heard people buy Jordans, people, you know, lick, like take it all out of the bank and invest it to all kinds of crazy things. But I bought an iPhone uh, and I never told this part of the story to anyone except for my current wife, who was my girlfriend at the time. I kid you not, less than two days later, I smashed the screen, like completely smashed. And there was no like 
Pacific Mom, no, there was nothing like that at the time because the phone was so new. I literally had to go back to Apple and spend another like 300 bucks to get the phone fixed. And the amount of guilt that I had from using not only my my student loan to buy the phone, I had to use it to fix the phone. And it was like a message. It was like a sign from God, like, you idiot. Like, what are you doing, you know? So I'm kind of like Ray. I'm very much a minimalist. I like to splurge on nice things, but I'm very much a minimalist. But ever since then, I've been very careful with, like, how I spend my money. Apple Care is pretty good, though. Did you find that customer service proper? Well, let me just say, I didn't have Apple Care before match the phone. Well, actually, Damn. I actually had to pay out of pocket. You <clears throat> always find out about Apple Care after the After device. the fact, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, and they're telling me, hey, do you want to get it now for the next time? And I'm like, no. And they look at me like, maybe you should get it. You know, <laughs> broke this phone in two days. So I think oh. I was listening to music and then I wanted to go swimming. And I forgot to take my iPod out of my pockets and I dove in. And then realize like something's floating. You know how you can feel yourself like floating in the water? I, I felt my iPod, so I jumped out, but it was gone. It was gone, completely gone. I got lazy. I didn't go to Apple for months, months. Then I go to Apple and well, I had to put on a poker face because I gave them the iPod. And the first question the man told me, we don't cover any water damage. The man was <laughs> adamant. He's like, if your iPod has water damage, we ain't covering it. And I was like, well, hello, my name's Abby. You know, like that's the, that was that was like his first interaction with me. So he's like, so does it have water damage? I guess I just wanted to see an experiment. So I was like, nah. He brought out some light. I was like, okay, I'm done. You know, they're equipped with this like light. So he's like, I'm going to find it if it has water damage. Pulls out a light, starts examining it, looks at me, examines it, looks at me. I'm ready for him to just be like, you're a liar. And the man just, he's like, all right, I didn't find any water damage. I'm going to get you a new iPod. So I remember that day was hilarious. I was just like, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. Uh, but in terms of the composure you have to have to, to be like, yo, look him dead in the face and be like, you find out if I have water damage or not, because I'm not telling you. But in terms of bad purchases, I'm same as you guys. I, I don't, I try not to own too, too many items. However, I remember, I think Ray mentioned it. Uh, I don't know if Battery mentioned it as well, but there was an obsession with, for myself, looking fly. So if I made irresponsible purchases, it had something to do with clothing. So first year, I was trying to go to some event, some campus event. I think the event itself started around like 8.30 or 9. And then I had to sneak in. I'm kind of revealing myself in terms of my terrible thinking during my undergrad years, but I didn't want to be pictured in the same outfit. You know what I mean? They used to throw the plaster the images all over Facebook right after the event, right? So it's like, yo, why is Kyle wearing the hoodie that you wore at last event? And you wore the event before that. So it got to my confidence. So I ended up telling myself I have to have a new outfit every single time I go to one of these events. The way I rationalized that financially is I just stopped going to a lot of these events. I only went to a select number, but this one in particular, I had to go to, I had to support. I remember my friend was doing something. It might've been like performance or something like that. And then I get in and I get into the bay right before closing. So this is Yorkdale Mall. I get into the bay right before closing. I'm I'm about to buy the shirt that I'm going to wear at this event. I'm just going to toss whatever I had in my backpack. I go, I'm like, yo, I need a flannel. Mistake number one. 
I, I wore those like box flannels. Uh, the lady guides me to the Ralph Lauren section. So she's like, if you're going to make me stay, you're going to give me a nice commission. So here's getting, our Ralph Lauren. I'm getting a big commission before I go home tonight. <laughs> Here you go. This is, this, is, this is our premium flannel. So pick a premium flannel. So I'm like, ah, I don't know about all that. Like, there was a sale section in the Ralph Lauren section. But sale and Ralph Lauren, there's a little bit of oxymoron in itself, right? You're not going to agree to get a good price. So I go, I pick out a shirt. There's people behind me in the line. So the lady didn't even look at the price. I was like, yo, I'm ready. The price rings up. It says 210 I'm an undergrad student. I was used to getting them for like 60 70 bucks. 210 This lady looked at me like, I don't know. Was there, was there racial undertones? I don't know. I felt her judging me across the line, <laughs> across the desk, right? You can't so afford like, this, but you know you want yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. Do you have money? And I was like, uh, okay. Uh, okay, let me log into the TD app. Let me see where I'm at right now. She's like, no, no, no. Like, you're going to have to step to the side. I had some like macho feeling and I was like, swipe, 210, swipe, boom. Took the shirt, wore the shirt, and I didn't feel good that whole event, man. Because like, oh, yeah. Yeah, because my, my shirt's 210, but like nobody cares. You know what I mean? Yeah. So nobody's like, yo, your shirt's oh, my goodness. 210. Your shirt's Ralph Lauren. Your shirt's amazing. It's like, they might just give you like, mm-hmm. That's a nice, mm. Like, you yeah. know, that acknowledgement, but not verbal. Yeah. Impulse yeah, buy, but like immediate regret. Yeah, and uh, word to the wise, if you got to check your app, it's already over. If you got to yeah. if you gotta pull up your TV yeah. app, it's a, it's a wrap right there. Like, <laughs> you should not be buying that, man. Yeah. yeah. And that's why I never understood, like, people that spend, like, three to four figures on just clothing because of the name brand. I mean, to each their own, but like, I, I never got that concept just because there's only rare occasions where you get to wear that. And how often yeah, do people exactly. know you're, you're spending money on expensive yeah. stuff? When I was thinking about irresponsible purchases, like you, Ray, I had a hard time with like coming up with examples. And I think what I landed on yesterday as I was thinking about this is things that I've spent money on for like a period of time without giving much thought to. So the example that I landed on was um, the amount I've spent in the last 10 years on PC laptops versus MacBook laptops. Because generally speaking, PCs are always like cheaper than MacBooks. Yeah. But like I've gone through like I think two or three in the last 10 years. It's only recently I, I forked over the money for a MacBook and lo and behold, like this thing has not given me trouble. It's been smooth. So word to the wise, just, you know, think through your purchases uh, before you just kind of dish out money. One of the big things is everyone has all these subscriptions that they never even realize that they have. People have more subscriptions for streaming services now than they were paying for cable before they canceled it. One good example I have from the investing world is um, there's this thing in the crypto world. It's called Unisox. Basically, it's this crypto token. And if you buy it, you have the right to exchange it for this pair of socks. Okay. So originally it was worth, you know, maybe $10. Okay. Um, and you get this pair of socks if you trade in coin. And there's only a limited amount of socks, right? It's like a one of one sock, this beautiful artistic sock, whatever. And right now, that coin for one sock is worth like $70,000 less at chip. So in terms of irresponsible investments, buying a crypto <laughs> sock, you know, right up there with the, with the hundreds of thousands of dollars that went to Beanie Babies back when, you know, if you remember that, Shan, but yeah. Oh, right. Damn. I remember that, actually, the Furbies. Assets versus liabilities, 101. Listeners, just uh, we have a late introduction. A resident podcaster joining us. 
Khalaf, welcome to, to today's episode. Glad you could join us. Uh, I know for sure you got some input on some irresponsible purchases you've made. Sorry for the late intro, guys. I'm usually just uh, playing the background, but sometimes the conversations are making me laugh so hard. It's like I got to share a, a one-two tidbit as well. The funny thing for me about irresponsible purchases is actually mine like went up at the beginning of the pandemic just because like we couldn't go anywhere. To feel normal, I was actually just buying a lot of garbage. Like it was really weird. I, I tone it down now, but I feel like I kind of blame like all these connected algorithms because it was like, for example, like I really wanted to buy a suit right before the pandemic ended. And I kept on getting this ad for like this suit on my Instagram, which is really weird. And I just ended up buying it. Immediately after I bought it, I'm like, I bought this suit and I have nowhere to go. Like, why did I buy this? You know what I mean? And also the wave of the like, uh, I think it was like in July and June, there's all this like big push to like support like a lot of, you know, black owned businesses. And I saw myself literally like buying a new t-shirt from black owned business like every week. And then I had, mm -hmm. to, I literally had to like cold turkey stop because it was getting out of hand. Not only because a lot of them weren't located in Canada, but because I kept on having to pay these wild shipping fees that were like $20, like almost worth like half of the shirt. So when you guys were talking about irresponsible purchases, I was like, literally, at some point, I was looking at my bank account too, like, I can't afford this, man. Like, why am I doing this? So I just wanted to just mention that. And it was just, it was getting pretty out of hand. Thankfully, it's toned down now. But at the beginning of the pandemic, I was definitely wild. This is, I think, a, a really good segue into, and now we're going to shift into to our main topic, gentlemen, principles concerning money. And, and Ray, this is where I think we would love your perspective and your take in a way that's like kind of accessible to all the folks that are listening today. So for me personally, my ongoing journey, and I emphasis on the word ongoing to financial literacy started, I think when I was about 26, you know, read The Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki, uh, which is a classic. And, you know, the whole premise of the book is to equip readers with just a set of like, you know, sound principles of how to think about money drawing from, you know, Kiyosaki's, you know, personal experiences. So, you know, principles like have money work for you, learn financial literacy, understand how taxes work, work to learn and don't work for money. You know, Ray, you know, what are some of like the, you know, maybe it's one or two uh, financial principles that have served you well and have, you know, ended up yielding you a good return up to this point of your life? Maybe share, you know, one or two with our listeners. I think there's, you know, some people forget just the absolute basics. Don't spend more than you earn, you know, just stuff as basic as that. And one thing that people really uh, need to work on is kind of automating their saving and investing because that's that really goes a long way. You know, when you when you set it up once and you don't have to even think about um, how much you're saving on a regular basis and you've totally automated all your investments, it's it doesn't even have to come across your mind. Right. Like if you look at. If you're watching your investments every day and you're overthinking, oh, do I need to buy, sell more, whatnot, and watching all the noise, people start to, you know, overthink themselves. And it's it really doesn't have to be that that complicated. You really just have to, you know, set a couple of rules for yourself. Take some time, sit down, um, whether it's like with a financial advisor or whoever. But yeah, and just be able to automate everything once. And you can do this by yourself too, very easily. You don't need a financial advisor for this, but make sure that you you build a system that's going to serve you long-term. You don't have to, you know, be doing this every day. It's just, you have to build a system that'll really take your mind out of it and let things go on autopilot. Um, but yeah, that's that's one key thing I think uh, a lot of people could, could work on. Yeah, I think those are the sound fundamentals, right? Don't spend more than you earn um, and automate your savings. And it's crazy that even to this day, we're still, that's still the advice that's going around because you think about like, Canada's household debt and all of that kind of stuff, right? And it's like at exponential rates. I don't know the exact figure, right? So I think don't spend more than you earn is kind of timely um, given the world we're in. 
Hirsch, I know that for you, this is like something, a topic you're passionate about, like you're even investing in your own personal learning just to become more financially savvy. You want to share some of the valuable lessons you've been learning so far that have like really surprised you? I think it's, um, I learned early on about the need to not chase excitement, right? So I think when I was starting in my investment journey, I was following my intuition. So I approach things from a little bit of like an off the wall perspective where I try to find issues that need to be tackled and I try to find companies that are tackling issues, right? So I'll give you guys an example for uh, the electric vehicle market. The issue previously was price points in terms of electric vehicles, but Tesla and, and other companies have kind of caught that down. So in terms of adoption from everyday consumers, it's no longer that the electric vehicle is too expensive. One of the issues that comes up though is people's comfort with taking those electric vehicles and traveling far distances with them because the power grid that we currently have um, or the charging stations that are currently set up are inadequate for, for some of these long distance drives. So it makes it a bit difficult for people who are doing things like road trips or have to travel back and forth because you kind of always know where a gas station is around you. But in terms of electric charging station, that's not something that I guess comes to mind or, or something you could easily find. So there's companies that are investing or looking into solving this issue and creating these kind of recharge, recharge stations that don't actually rely on the power grid. So they're self-containing. So something like that's exciting, but a lot of these companies are early stage companies. For my traditional kinds of investments, I tend to stick for the most part to ETFs and index funds because they're safe, they're not exciting, like they're not like, I think 10 baggers, 50 baggers or whatnot. But at the end of the day, investing shouldn't be something that causes you heart palpitations, right? There are companies that are that I get excited about. I try to take a look at the fundamentals of the company. Uh, the balance sheet of the company, figure out what the leadership of the company is, figure out like what strategies that they've employed, trying to do like a holistic assessment of a company. But at the same time, you rarely win trying to pick like one or two companies. But I give my, I always give myself a little bit of space in my portfolio to try to pick out those companies because it keeps it interesting for me and it keeps me researching the actual space whatever the problems are that are being solved for and what companies are at the forefront of that. But on the whole, a lot of it is like quite heavily reliant on index funds so that you just sleep at night and relax, you know? That's a great point, Abby. I think um, being able to sleep at night is such an underrated investment portfolio requirement. You mentioned a, a great point again about having a lot of your money in ETFs. When people ask me, what I usually try to target is at least like generally for most people, I'd say 80% um, put in ETFs and then 20% put in companies, you know, that you research and you really like, you know, things you use on an everyday basis. And then if you really want to do like YOLO type of uh, investments, try to limit it to, to like one to 2% of your, your portfolio. You know, for me in particular, I was always in school and it was like, I, I went straight from my undergrad to my master's and it was like, wasn't really spending a lot of money anyway, but then I started working Immediately, it's like, oh, we have money now, and now disposable income, you think of it as disposable, and you can just, you know, you know go out to eat, you know, buy clothes, buy whatever it is, right? And I think it kind of hit me hard when, you know, I wanted to get married, and it was like, okay, let's think about finances. And I really didn't 
sit down until my mid-twenties and think about like what is it that I actually need? What are things in my life that are wants and things that I can kind of get rid of? Um, or maybe make a compromise on or sacrifice, right? I feel like now looking back, I could have done that so much earlier. It really doesn't take that much, right? And I wouldn't have been living much differently, really, because I was in school and I wasn't really spending that much, right? So um, just having the opportunity to get that head start, I think that's so crucial. I know in my family, up until, I guess, myself, we don't really know much about investing and we don't know much about, you know, financial products that you can kind of put your money away in or kind of like like Ray said, automate kind of your savings and how your money grows, right? So I, I've done, I've tried to do way more work on that for sure. Um, and then the second point about, you know, investing. When I first started investing, it was like, okay, Wolf on Wall Street, I'm gonna kill this. I'm, I'm smarter than the market. Like you can't fool me. And you, you learn very quickly, the market is such a beast. It's like, things don't work like intuitively, like you think they would work, right? Your life savings is like a drop in the bucket compared to some major institutions that are investing and kind of affecting how algorithms work with investing, right? So you have to be really smart. And I think I've made mistakes on that in the past. And it's one thing that Ray said is like investing is inherently, it should be not exciting. Like it's inherently a boring thing. It's mostly, I heard a quote recently, it's 80% waiting investing, right? Which was the opposite of what I was doing. I was following all these stocks and I was following all these sorts of you know, index funds and ETFs and it was a lot, it was too much, right? And so kind of boiling it down you know, to basics, right? Like the thing Ray said, if you wanna do YOLO investing, use one or 2% of your income or sorry, your money that you've put away and yeah, go ahead. And I think kind of being able to sketch it out on paper and sit down and have a plan first is probably the thing that has given me the most success. Um, Hirsch touched on, you know, like investing in companies that are solving the problems of the future. And I always think a close friend of mine I went to university with, I, I love telling this story. He's an international student whose tuition was paid by his aunt who bought Dell when it was like a penny stock and invested a lot of money in it. And then Dell became Dell and she became richer than she knew what to do with her money. And so paid mm -hmm. for all of her nieces and nephews education because that's how much money she made. Right. And so I always think about that story and it was like, okay, she did that in the seventies before Dell was making like personal computers. Right. So having the foresight, sometimes it's luck and sometimes it's having the foresight to know where investment will flow. I'm glad that I learned what I needed to learn prior to this year because I would have been one of those GameStop people. I, w I definitely would have invested right at the top and lost a lot of money, right? So I'm very thankful. You know, I've had people in my life show me the ropes and, you know, things have been much better from that perspective. But I see how much people have lost on GameStop and I'm like, I get it. I I'm it's much more comfortable putting my money away now, automating mm -hmm. it. So I have like 80% of my money is just like, automated through like mm -hmm. ETFs and all that kind of stuff. And then I play with, you know, some of my money and that's it. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I might make one or two investments a year and that's really all I do. I have to acknowledge this isn't what I do for a living. I can't pretend like I'm some expert. It's kind of an insult to people that like people like Ray who do this for a living for me to think like, oh yeah, I, I, can, I can do this. Ah, soft. This is easy. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that those are great points, Better. I just wanted to chime in with a couple quick tidbits. Um, I heard a quote, I can't remember who it's from, but it said like the stock market is a tool to transfer money from patient people to inpatient people, the Warren Buffett quote. Yeah. So 
when sometimes I'll talk investments with a friend of mine who might not pay attention as much, but will be like, what, what should I look at? Well, and I'll, I'll maybe send them a suggestion or, or tell them to look into this either in ETF or a company. And they look at their phone and they're like, it went down seven cents yesterday. And it's like, yeah, it fluctuates all the time. It's not like a reason to yeah get jittery, just relax. You're in it for the mid to long term. So just maybe check back in in a month, check back in in a couple of weeks. The importance of doing your due diligence that you don't have to check this hourly. But I think it speaks to escapism, right? A lot of people think to themselves, what if I invested in Bitcoin in like 2009 or 2010 or whatnot? And truth be told, I was reading a Reddit thread where people who owned Bitcoin back then were like, yeah, I gave it away for a pizza, you know? Like it's you it's like winning the lottery. Exactly. You bought a drone with it. It meant nothing to anyone at, at that time. But this idea that like you can jump on it. And I think a lot of people have that kind of FOMO feeling. And that's driving a lot of investment into these new spaces. Just the amount of speculation. And it's not that stocks are not um, susceptible to this to a degree because we've gone away from the fundamentals a bit for some companies and they're just inflating like crazy. And somebody said, I remember somebody saying, you can't, you can't make a wrong choice in a bull market. So a lot of people that made money last year think they're financial wizards, but I think Ray mentioned it's like once in a generation opportunity, perhaps, right? I had people that were just like, look at this stock, look at this stock. And it went up because the entire market kind of went up and rebounded. So I think in terms of thinking through these things, communities of color, uh, Bader mentioned, a lot of the times we don't speak to things like the stock market that much or don't speak in depth about investing. And it turns people away when they make all these risky bets right out the jump and then they lose money. They get away from the fundamentals and altogether they just kind of drop investing and say, oh, it's not for me. It's too much like gambling. And it's like, no, it's only gambling because you essentially started by gambling right? You didn't even take the one or 2% approach. You just threw like half your portfolio and something. If it went down, you're just turned off. So I hope people listen and really yeah. take the lessons from this discussion and ground themselves a bit. Being at home, you see like people on social media, like, Hey, I took a dollar I made it a thousand. Now I have to run my own drop shipping business. And here in my garage, just bought this uh, new Lamborghini here. Fun to drive up here in the Hollywood Hills. All this stuff. It's like if you're not able to turn a dollar into <laughs> like your weight immediately. Oh, like, oh, those ads, yeah. those ads. Oh my god. There was this ad where I was I yeah. was on YouTube. Like some guy spurts in on a skateboard and he's like, Are you invested in real estate? Are you invested in the stock market? It's because you don't know any better. It's like guy. Why would I take advice from a guy who skirts onto my screen on a rollerblade, you know? I wanted to get Ray's opinion on this because you, Ray, you mentioned you work with bonds quite a bit and whether it's bonds, whether it's people holding fiat currency, I think part of the uptick in this trend in crypto and people just looking at the returns they're getting from hold, personally holding bonds and like when you have an influencer like Elon Musk telling you like fiat might be garbage or like putting your money in a savings account is whack, like whatever the case may be, it's a tricky time because I think Previously, uh, I heard of the 60-40 balance fund, right? So traditional portfolio of stocks and bonds, but that just not generating the returns that people have been accustomed to previously. So what do you think about the current environment and its like connection to kind of the craziness we're seeing in the market? 
Yeah, that's a it's an interesting question. So, so people think bonds are boring, and generally, you know, they are. That's kind of by design. But there are some good stats out there. Like, for example, I think if you held, there's one graph of the 10-year bond, 10-year U.S. bond versus S&P 500 over the last 30 or so years, and you'll see that the bond will outperform the S&P at various points in time over the last 30 years in in terms of the total return over that time, the cumulative return. So. Bonds can definitely be like a great um, way to diversify your portfolio because usually, you know, stocks and bonds will be inversely correlated. Like if you were 100% bonds, you know, last year going into March, April, when people were selling stocks like crazy and the Fed was cutting rates, then you would have been up like quite a bit versus being uh, down quite a bit if you're holding 100% stocks. So definitely. The 60-40, that comes from, you know, some PhDs doing research and I think the Markowitz theory, um, it's generally a good ratio. Right now, the bond environment, it, the risk return doesn't look as great to me. For example, there's so much money chasing bonds right now because a lot of people just have a lot of money. A lot of institutional investors have a lot of money to put into bonds. So, so let's say you're a bank and you want to deposit money at the, the Bank of Canada or the Fed, you can do that. And you could, if the Bank of Canada, for example, will pay a bank 25 basis points, okay? So 0.25% or the Fed will pay a bank 0.1%. But if you're an average investor and you want to buy bonds right now, you have to buy like a two-year bond to get that same kind of return of just placing it overnight in like a savings account at a central bank. Bonds are in a bit of a, a weird scenario right now. Bonds are not the sexiest portfolio um, holding either. So a lot of people are now talking about speculating that inflation is going to go crazy and to hold, you know, Bitcoin and stuff as kind of a hedge to that. I think Bitcoin as a store of value to me, it doesn't 100% make sense because during March or April, I mean, Bitcoin fell like 40% while US dollar cash was up 10%. Ultimately, it's like cash is king. What are you going to pay your groceries with, right? Bitcoin, cash. In terms of inflation hedging, I mean, Bitcoin is an interesting one. I think, you know, it's, it's more driven by other things than, you know, just purely inflation. But honestly, a really good inflation hedge is just holding stocks. Stocks generally are well correlated enough that any inflation flow through like that goes into the price of oil that produces goods um, or increasing labor costs that'll generally get passed through to you know through the expenses onto the customer of various companies and stocks are honestly a good inflation hedge even if you look at like venezuela argentina um those stock markets during the crazy inflation they've had over the past couple of years uh, you can see that stock markets you know on a currency hedge basis they outperformed a little bit just because of the uh the inflation hedge that came through with holding the stocks. You know, you guys raised a couple other points that I uh, thought were really good. But you're saying about like needing to have kind of professional experience to do, you know, day trading and stuff. And that's yeah. really true. There's a study on South Korean day traders, you know, South Korean market is, is a pretty good one. And um, I think over 90% of day traders lose money there. So a lot of these guys, you know, that are day traders are really just trying to sell you an investment course or something, right? And time is a huge thing. A lot of these brokerage accounts for high net worth individuals or whatnot, a lot of the best performing retail accounts over the years, banks will go and find one and say, oh wow, this account's perform amazing. And they'll find that generally, the owners of them are mostly dead. dead, and gone, dead and gone. Because they've just forgotten about their accounts and their investments are just accumulating over time. They've forgotten about it. And their accounts are doing so well because they haven't touched it or that's like, you insane. know, super old or whatnot. So yeah, yeah people underestimate wow. the power of just time. But yeah, time is ultimately your best friend in the game of investing. I mentioned earlier, it's a zero sum game, right? And do you, who do you think is going to get crushed? Like the retail investor or the institutions and hedge funds that are 
really doing this with massive resources on a full-time basis. So it's 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 tough to play the game. Best to be patient and uh, be a, a smart investor. This is where patience becomes more than ever a, a virtue, but also it becomes to some degree profitable. Another financial mind that I subscribe to is a guy by the name of Peter Lynch, who was basically a stock picker from like back in the 80s. I think he worked for Fidelity. And I think in the beginning of one of his book, One Up on Wall Street, like he highlighted like the one of the prerequisites to, you know, stock picking is obviously like, you know, making sure that, you know, you do your due diligence, you're doing your homework. It's not like you're not just kind of going at it all willy nilly, but like it's just having the stomach weather the storm right and if you take a look at just like the corrections and everything that's happened with the economy it's like everything kind of just evens out and you still make a, a decent return if you just kind of wait it out long enough well one thing you you look for online or you find very humorous is the fx uh the fx traders or the guys that try to convince you to take a course in fx but what currency would you not trade for a, a roll of toilet paper off the top of your head <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Be wary of these FX guys, man. I've had some like family friends who have told me about this. Like tried to get me in this FX thing, and it's just, yeah, it's a tough one. Um, in can terms you, can of, you explain to our listeners just before you give your answer, Ray, what FX is? FX. So FX is just foreign exchange. A lot of people on these foreign exchange sites or courses that'll slide into your DMs will try to like sell you a course and say, oh, you can make a lot of money by copying our trades. And, you know, sometimes you'll copy their traits and you might you might make a few bucks and you'll get more involved and they'll they'll try to take a commission off you or whatnot. A lot of them, though, are straight up scams. You know, anything in anything in Venezuela right now, just like just, yeah, <laughs> that's probably the one, you know, everyone's trying to make a buck, man. <laughs> guys, I knew some guys who did Forex training like when I was in first year and they made a lot of money fast. It's short-lived, though, right? Because like, mm. if you don't have the financial principles to keep like growing that money, you know, then it's just like a random payday that yeah. you got lucky mm. off of, right? Um, yeah. I looked into it myself, and it just scared the shit out of me. I have no clue what mm. I'm doing in that space. What a game. I would say the easy ways to spot a scam is, one, have the person explain to you in common terms why you should invest in something. So that'll challenge the notion of like how well they understand it. So if someone says like, you got to invest in Cardano and you're like, why should I invest in it? Because you just got to. It's like, okay, you know, sign number one, he, he yeah. can't like break it down to you. Second is if they tell you that in the course of your investing, you have to pull in other investors. If it seems too good to be true, it's Chances too good to be true. Yeah. Chances are it is. I would even be cautious of the first uh, red flag, right? Because if I'm sure like they can come up with some random explanation about what this is. Right. Mm -hmm. um, like, I think we live in a world today where people are not short of words. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> I think, uh, yeah. like, I think the due diligence, like, even if like you are interested, even if you are eager to get out of your nine to five with Amazon, I think you need, you owe it to yourself to like do your homework first before like you commit to the, to the eight week long course. That's like $2,500 USD. Mm -hmm. There's one more great quote by, uh, the, so this one's by Charlie Munger, the Warren Buffett's longtime yeah. business partner. Yeah. Uh, show me the incentives and I'll show you the outcome. And that's another one to add to your list, Hirsch. You know, you look at these forest guys' incentives. Is it to refer you and make money off referrals or is it to make money from their trades or whatnot? 
but yeah, look at someone's incentives and you'll see the outcomes for sure. Gentlemen, I think that's a good way to, to end today's episode. Ray, uh, thank you so much for your, your input, your expertise, and uh, I'm sure our listeners appreciated the same thing as well too. Gentlemen, thank you also. Um, thank you for your perspectives. And listeners, thank you for tuning in to today's episode. And as always, we would always love your feedback on how we can make this a better listening experience for each and every single one of you. Please leave your comments on our page at the Stay Word Podcast. As always, we hope you found this insightful and we look forward to having you join us for our next episode. Be safe and take care, everyone. And now, if you enjoyed what you heard on today's episode of Say Word, please comment, share, and subscribe. Three simple steps for support go a long way. Mm -hmm.